Oh. Good morning to you. My name is Pastor Joe. I'm the pastor that has the privilege of opening God's Word and sharing a little bit about what he says about our lives today. Now, if you've been joining in with us in the past couple weeks, then you may know that Pastor Denny has been in a, he's been in a series called Handling the Pressures of Life. So if you've missed any of those messages, they're really, really good. I want to encourage you to go back onto our Facebook page or our YouTube channel or even our podcast and download those messages and make sure you haven't missed those. But when we're thinking about the pressures of life, I would say if there's one key relationship where the cracks show up, when the pressures get turned up, it's in the relationship of, as you might have guessed it from the intro video, the relationship of marriage. There's a, an online company called LegalTemplates.net who sells legal forms. And a few months ago, they released this statement. They said that, they said that. All right, I'll just read it to you. They said that we've seen a 34% increase in sales of our divorce agreement compared to the same period in 2019. Now, I'll give you one guess as to which period of 2020 they were talking about compared to 2019. You, you probably guessed it. It's March through June of this year, they saw a massive increase in people wanting divorce documents. In fact, the biggest increase, 57%, came on April 13th, which just happened to be three weeks after most states implemented a quarantine. Now, now here's the thing, and you probably know this. Whether it's the pressure brought on by a global pandemic, or just the normal pressures of a marriage. Pressures like handling finances, or managing conflict, or, or raising children, or balancing careers, and on and on and on and on. Even the best marriages face difficulty. And it's a difficulty, really, that is faced by most people. Pew Research in 2017 said this. They said that half of all Americans age 18 and older are married. Most people in our country are married. In fact, if you're part of our CAC family and you're older than 18, there's actually about a two-thirds chance, 61% chance, that you are married. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of time together and, and we're going to talk about what God's Word says about marriage. And as we look at that today, I want to let you know just up front about three challenges I encountered as I was getting ready to share this message with you. The first challenge was self-inflicted. I told my wife several weeks ago that I was going to be standing up in front of all of you great people telling you about how to have a good marriage. And she has had a ton of fun with the leverage that has given her since then. So quite a few times she has said, aren't, aren't you going to be talking about marriage in a couple weeks? Is that really how you want to act? And so, so I have been working on this as well as I'm going to be asking you to work on it. The second thing is this. So, so when you look at the Bible, and you say, okay, what does this book say about marriage? What does God want to know, us to know about marriage? What you may find is there is no one, this is the chapter, or this is the book that says all that there is to say about marriage. Now, in, in God's word, marriage is all throughout it. From the very beginning, the marriage of Adam and Eve, all the way to the end in Revelation, where Christ is married to the church. Marriage is a theme all throughout Scripture. Many of the biblical characters were married. One was even married like 700 times to 700 different women. We're not going to unpack that today. All I want you to know is when you look at God's word, there's a lot to say about marriage. However, putting together a teaching on marriage is kind of like creating a quilt. You have to take beautiful separate pieces of material and weave them together into a unified fabric. Now here's challenge number three. 
There is a whole lot that could be said about marriage. If you just stick to the Christian genre and go into christianbook.com and, and Google or uh, search for books about marriage, you're going to find like 3,311 books that teach about marriage. I have 30 minutes. So I want to just give you an upfront warning. At some point during this message today, you're, you're going to get frustrated because there's something really, really important or something that you feel like would be massively helpful that I'm not going to say. And I just want you to know upfront, you're right, and I'm frustrated about it too. But my guess is that you want to leave at some point today. And so for that sake, we're going to kind of stick to one very narrow look at a part of marriage. To kind of show you where we're going, I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine that marriage is a banana cream pie. Because marriage is really good and banana cream pie is really, really good. What we're going to be talking about today is kind of like one slice and in one sense, it's like one slice of banana cream pie. It's really, really delicious and really, really enjoyable and really, really important. But there's other slices. There's other parts that are also delicious and important. But in another sense, what we're going to talk about today is kind of like the bananas in the banana cream pie. Because if you take the bananas out of the banana cream pie, you no longer have banana cream pie. You have maybe something else. But it's not banana cream pie. And what we're going to talk about today, if you take it out of your view of marriage, of your understanding of marriage and how you live in your marriage or how you as a single person look forward to marriage one day, you're going to lose the essence of what marriage is. Today we're going to look at the answer to the question of where did marriage come from? Have you ever wondered, where did marriage come from? How did we get marriage? We look around society, and, and so many people are married. It's kind of like a given. In fact, anthropologists call marriage a cultural universal. It's a cultural universal. What that means is it's something done in some form or another by every human culture around the world. It means that no matter where you go around the world, whatever culture and whatever piece of history you look at, you're going to find marriage, and it's going to seem as, marriage, as though marriage has always been there. And it's been a head-scratcher for people who study this stuff. They've come up with some guesses as to how this happened. They, they, some people would say, okay, well, early on, you know, men wanted some assurance that the children were, were, they were raising were biologically theirs, and women wanted assurance that the men whose children they were raising wouldn't leave them desolate, so they came up with marriage. Or, or others would say that, look, look, people figured out that children who were raised in a, with a man and a woman who were stayed in a committed relationship had a higher likelihood of survival, so people came up with this arrangement called marriage to preserve their human race. Or, or others might say it developed over the course of time to bring stabilization to society so people would fight less and kill each other less so that we could all live happily. But the problem for secular thinkers has been that because marriage predates recorded history, there's no recorded history of how it happened. That is uh, unless you take into account what God tells us in his word about marriage. Because when you look at what God tells us in his word, you don't see people looking back at you and saying, I, I don't really know. You see a God looking back at us and saying, I did it. I created this. I made it. Where did marriage come from? God created marriage. God created marriage. 
And when we look at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this is how it went down. In, in Genesis chapter 1, 27, the Bible tells us that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This is kind of the wide-angle view of how God created humankind. Think of it, think of this as like, this is like the high school history class that mentions the Civil War at some point. But as we go from Genesis chapter 1 into Genesis chapter 2, the Bible begins to give us a more detailed account of how God created human beings. It's like the Civil War class. It's like all it talks about. In Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that God created animals and all these living creatures, and then he created one human being, man. Genesis 2.19 says that God brought them, the animals, to Adam to see what he would name them. Now here's the thing. God had just made the whole world. He, he could have certainly come up with some names too. He wasn't too tired. So I, I can't prove this, but I think he had a hidden motive for what he was doing here with Adam. I, I think he's, he was doing what marketing experts would call establishing needs recognition. So he, he's got this plan. He's like, okay, Adam, I want you to stand here and I want you to give these, yeah, that's it. You give these animals names. And he has animals walk past Adam two by two. For each animal he saw, each one had another like it. And I believe God watched Adam's face as it went from delight that he had been given such an important task to disappointment that he noticed that every other living creature had another like it except for one. Except for him. Genesis 2.20 tells us for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There was no one else like him. And I can imagine as the last animal goes by, Adam standing in the garden, maybe looking around and thinking, surely there's got to be one more, God. Surely there's got to, what, what about one for me? And I can just imagine that God, kind of like a father who knows he's going to give a child a, an amazing present on Christmas morning, God smiled with delight as he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, takes a rib from his side, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And Adam's reaction is priceless. As God walks the bride down the aisle to give her away, just as the father walks a daughter down the aisle to give her away to the man, the New Living Translation of the Bible says that Adam exclaimed, At last! Finally! If, if I did a Joe Flores version of the Bible, it would be like, Whoa, baby! Or if you remember Full House when growing up in the 90s, like Uncle Jesse, have mercy. I can't say like he said it, but have mercy. Adam is thrilled and he said, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. God walks her down the aisle. The man's excited. And, and, and the Bible doesn't really tell us much about the ceremony. It doesn't tell us if there was a center aisle or, or if someone sang a song. It doesn't tell us what the bride wore. But it does tell us that between Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 2, verse 25, a wedding occurred. Because by verse 25, it went from man and woman to Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So I guess we do know what the bride wore. But more importantly... We know that in that beautiful garden, God created the first marriage. This is how marriage came to be. Now I can imagine 
if you're sitting there, you might be asking a question, and I, I want to address it, because I ask this question, too, when I'm going through this stuff. Here, here's the question. Why does it even matter where marriage came from? That was many, many years ago. What's, like, who cares? It is what it is now. Let me try to explain it like this. I'll do my best. So in my pocket, it's not turned on, actually. You know what this is, right? It's a, it's a phone. Don't call me. It's not on. I, I figured I should mention that because somebody was going to do that to me. This is a, you know what kind of phone this is? You can probably tell. If you can't tell from the, the front, the back, it's, a, it's an iPhone. It's made by a company called Apple. You can see the stamp right on it. It's made by Apple. Now, because we are so familiar with devices like this, every one of us probably has one in our pocket right now, we take it for granted how incredibly important it is that we know who made it. But think about how hard it would be to use this if you didn't know who made it. If you had one of these, even if you knew it was a phone, but you didn't know who made it, you couldn't go to a cell phone company and say, hey, can you turn this into something that I can make phone calls with and send text messages with? If you can't tell them what kind of phone it is or who made it, they can't turn it on. Or if it breaks, if I don't know that Apple made this phone, I don't know what phone number to call or what store to drive to. Or if I want to protect it, I have a case on it. But if I didn't know it was an Apple phone, I wouldn't be able to go online and order a case. If I didn't know it was an Apple phone, I wouldn't be able to get a proper charging cable to keep it charged. If I didn't know who made it, I would not be able to use it for all that it was designed to be for me. And I think the same is true about marriage. You see, if we don't know who made it, we are greatly handicapped in our use of it in our lives. If we don't know who made it, then we're not able to experience all that the maker of marriage designed it to be for us. But when we really understand that God created marriage, and we allow ourselves to think through the implications of that, well, then whether you're single or married, I think it's going to have some profound impacts on our lives. And today I just want to give you four things that I think we can learn and we can apply to our lives when we know that God created marriage. Number one is this. When you know and you believe that God created marriage, it means that there's a design to, to discover. There's a design to discover behind this key human relationship. It's, it's not just up to us to determine what it might mean for us. It means there's a maker behind it who wants to help and guide us into knowing what he designed it to be for us. It's not up to us to determine it. Th think about this. When you look around the world that God created... Look at the sophistication that God has put into our world. In fact, you can just look around this room. There's a variety of different objects in this room, each that absorb and reflect light at a different rate. And then each of us has eyeballs that are sophisticated enough, designed by God, to see the different rates of reflection and absorption in a phenomenon that we call color. Every day this is going on, and we just see it, it's God's design. Or think about this, God designed our world with over three trillion trees. I looked that up on Google, I don't know who counted, but I'm going to assume it's a, that's a lot of trees. He puts these trees all over the world, and amongst their many, many purposes, trees also give off a gas called oxygen, 
which just happens to be the very gas that we as human beings have to breathe if we're going to continue to survive. God designed that. And then kind of a cherry on top, he's like, well, I guess I can just do some fall foliage if we're going to put these trees out here anyhow. I may, might as well make some fall foliage, which we're all going to enjoy in a couple weeks. Now, you've got to understand that at home, I have a nine- and a seven-year-old boy. So we have some very interesting conversations. Some of those conversations teach me a lot about God. Sometimes at our house, we talk about poop. Now, think about this. Our God is so amazing that he even designed poop to have a very, very important purpose. He made it so that animal excrement can be collected and put on fields to provide fertilizer to feed all of his living creatures. That's our God. Nothing he did didn't have a design. So doesn't it make sense that if God even made poop with a purpose, that whenever he puts together marriage and he takes a man and a woman and he, he unites them, he says, this is the relationship I've designed for you. I didn't just design this man. I just didn't design this woman. I designed a relationship for them to exist within. Doesn't it make sense that he is going to have a design for how he wants that to work and how he wants it to not work? And here's what I think it can mean for our lives. When we have challenges in our marriages and we have problems, that means that we have a maker that we can go to for solutions in our marriage. It's not up to us to figure it out on our own. In fact, God doesn't just make it and say, here, you go and do it, leave me alone. He says, no, 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 I made this for you. Come to me when it's not working. Ask me questions. I, I truly believe this. If you have a man and a woman who both say, I'm going to single-heartedly pursue God and his design for my marriage, if men and women across our country did that, you would see the divorce rate plummet. You would see companies like LegalTemplates.net go out of business. Because God would be healing marriages. This is why you'll hear us teach that it's so important for two followers of Jesus Christ to be united in marriage. Why it doesn't work whenever you have one who follows Jesus and one who doesn't. Because they're going to different places for the solutions in their marriage. When we know God designed marriages, we know he has a plan for a marriage. And he can fix any marriage. Number two. Number two is this. Knowing God created marriage brings the stability necessary for commitment. The stability necessary for commitment. Here's what I mean. Stability is absolutely critical, I think, to give and receive true commitment. True commitment has to be based on something stable. One of the things, you've probably heard this a lot since uh, COVID-19 started. One of the things I've heard a ton from people is, it's so frustrating because we can't plan anything because everything keeps changing. You know, can we have the wedding or not? Can we go on vacation or not? What's work going to look like? Are the kids going to go to school? I think we could call this the tension of the tentative. The tension of the tentative. It's this tension that comes from things changing and not being able to base anything on our lives on something stable. Now, outside of a pandemic, I think we can also experience the tension of the tentative in our marriage. Because oftentimes marriages in our society are based on things that not only can, but are also almost certain to change. Many people enter into a marriage based on feeling like they want to be married to that person. Or the romantic notions that they have in their minds. Or into a marriage that, well, it just makes sense, we're compatible, it's convenient. 
or, or in, into what culture tells them about marriage. And then they enter into that marriage and they find that over time, it changes. What I feel like doing changes. What's convenient changes. And then they begin to experience what this tension is. Because now you're married to someone you don't feel like being married to anymore. And, and it's changed. And is it going to change back? And what are you going to do? Because your bi- commitment is based on something unstable. Or, or, or you're, you know, you got married at one point when culture said this about marriage, but it changed. And now it's based on something else. In your marriage, when we know that God created it, then we can base our commitment not on my feelings or what's convenient, but on a God who never changes. In a world of tentativeness, we can have permanence. James chapter 1 says this. James writes that every good and perfect gift, including marriage, is from above. It's coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who is stable. He does not change. Like shifting shadows. What he's saying is this. He's saying if you've based your marriage on something that changes, then your commitment is really only good enough for today or maybe even just the near future because it's based on a shifting shadow. If you say to somebody, I want to be married to you as long as I like you, then what do you do when you don't really like them anymore? If you get married to somebody and you say, I'm going to get married to you, but it's kind of based on, hey, this is really working well right now. What do you do when it doesn't work well anymore? But when we believe a stable, unchanging God created a committed relationship for us to participate in, then we have the stability necessary to make a commitment. Because we're not basing our commitment on how I feel or what works for me. We're basing it on a God who doesn't change. Number three. Believing that God created marriage affirms marriage's goodness. It affirms marriage's goodness. If you maybe have an understanding of kind of the overall picture of the Bible, you may know that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end, is a story of how sin messes up the world and how God fixes it. But we saw that marriage was made in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And, and we know that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, Sin had not entered the world. And there weren't problems that caused issues in marriages like adultery or, 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 or selfishness or anger or frustration. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, or chapter 1 and 2 is a world without sin. And in this world, God created marriage and he says God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So we know that God created marriage to be good. We know that it wasn't something he made to fix our problems. Or to make us happy. It was something that was good in and of itself. I, I think within this is contained the response to the statement that you, maybe you've heard before. I don't need a piece of paper to be committed to somebody. Have you ever heard someone say that? I don't need a piece of paper to be committed to somebody. On, on one hand, i got to tell you, I, I kind of agree with that. When you do the homework on it, we find that marriage certificates, pieces of paper that symbolize marriage, they weren't even really recorded in history until 1639 in Massachusetts. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 happened a long time before 1639. And we know, we know that God didn't create the first marriage in Massachusetts because if he made Patriots fans, there's no way he could say that they were good. That was after the fall. So, so see, a marriage certificate 
It represents something that has happened. Just like a birth certificate or a death certificate. And just like with a birth certificate, you don't need to wait for a piece of paper to go ahead and be born. Or you certainly don't need to wait for a piece of paper to go ahead and die. People for years and years and years have been getting married and making a commitment to each other without a piece of paper. But here's the problem with the statement that I don't need a piece of paper to be committed to someone. It's the meaning that's behind it. Because what that real statement really says is, I, I, I want you to think I'm committed. I want to give the appearance of being committed. But I don't want to be held to it. It's kind of like, I, I want to get the house and take out the mortgage. But please don't ask me to agree to the terms on paper. It tries to give the appearance of a commitment and tie itself to the benefits of a commitment without being tied to real commitment. I, I think people say that sometimes because it happens. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a house where your parents fought constantly. Maybe you wish that they would get a divorce just to, just to solve the conflict. And you've thought to yourself, maybe you've made a vow that I'll never allow that to happen. There's no way I'm getting married if that's what marriage is. Or maybe you've seen friends get married and, and they tell you horror stories. Maybe you've had friends who've gotten married and they've already divorced before, before like it even could get started. Maybe you're in a bad marriage right now. There's problems, there's struggles, there's pain, there's hurt. And you're thinking to yourself, it would be more good if I wasn't in this relationship anymore. And, and to you, if that's you today, I just want you to say, I, I just want to say to you, don't lose the vision that God created marriage to be good. He, he doesn't say he created it to be always fun or always fulfilling or always happy or always the right relationship for every single person. But he does say that marriage is good. See, what I think is broken is not the commitment that comes in marriage, I, I think that what's been broken is our commitment to the commitment that comes in marriage. Last one, number four. Marriage undeifies, or God, knowing God created marriage undeifies marriage. It undeifies marriage. Yes, undeifies is a word. It really is, and I don't get too many opportunities to use it, so today is my chance. If you look it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, Undeify means to degrade from a state of deity. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 125. He's talking about how some distortion has come into human relationships. He says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things like marriage rather than the Creator. We have a tendency in our culture to deify marriage. To place it on God-like status. We have a tendency to worship marriage and believe that a marriage can meet needs that only God can meet in our lives. Or we have a tendency to believe that marriage can meet expectations or a marriage partner can meet expectations that only God can meet for us. 
We have to ask ourselves the question sometimes when we look at the challenges in our marriage, could it be possible that you and I have idolized marriage? With my wife's permission, I want to share a story with you um, about a challenge that we faced. Actually, I faced before we were married. As I go back and I kind of look at the game film of my marriage career, I realize that I've learned way more about marriage probably from the times that I haven't gotten it right than the times that I have, including before I was married. So the year was like 2006. I remember this pretty well. Uh, my wife and I had been in a committed dating relationship for about two years. And it really looked like the relationship was headed towards marriage. It, from, from all appearances, things were going well. But I wanted some certainty. Uh, the issue was, see, I, I, was, I still am. It wasn't just then. That's the way age works. I still am four years older than my wife. So in 2006, I was a few years into my career as a pastor, and she was just a junior in college. I started into ministry pretty much right out of college. And so I was older than her, and we were just different places in life. But I wanted to know, where was this relationship going? Like, is this really headed toward marriage, or am I wasting my time? Like, I had to know. And so I remember one night, the, the situation came to a head on the phone, and we had this long-distance relationship, so we're talking, and, and I want to know, is this where this relationship is going? And she was able to assure me of her feelings for me, but she just said, I can't with integrity say, I know that we're definitely getting married. I, I would really like to say that I had a response like the one that I wrote down on my piece of paper here. You are worth waiting for. At some point, we will have to determine our future, but I don't want to pressure you to do that until you're ready. Up until that point, let's keep praying about it and enjoying the relationship God has given to us. That would have been the right response. That was not my response. I got frustrated. I mean, I was almost 25 years old. It's like, I got much older. I was going to be too old to get married, right? Like, who would want me? I was going to be an old man. I wanted to know I wasn't wasting my time. Now, here's the thing. Even though I wasn't loving my then-girlfriend very well in my selfishness, she loved me well in her hesitance because God began to use that in my life to show me that I had an idolized view of marriage. See, I grew up kind of in a church context where, rightly so, they taught the biblical goodness of marriage, but it kind of got deified. And I started to believe some lies about marriage. One, I, I believe that if I wasn't married, then I didn't have as much worth. Like, I, I had less value because I didn't have this other human being to confirm and accept the value that I had. And God's response to that was, your worth was shown when my son Jesus died for you on the cross. And your acceptance was granted when he gave you forgiveness through his grace. I was believing another lie. I was believing that I couldn't be fulfilled in my life if I didn't have Trisha in my life. Like, if I didn't have her, how could I ever be fulfilled? And God showed me I was believing the lie that a human relationship could fulfill me when that was his job. I, I was believing the lie that my vision of what my good future should be was best. And God began to show me that whatever I could envision for good... If it was apart for his, from his vision for my life, it would never be as good as it could be. 
because his vision for what he had for me was best. I'll, I'll even confess to you as a pastor, I thought, man, if I'm not married, I'm not going to be as good of a pastor. Like, I won't be able to relate to people. It's going to hinder my ministry. And God's response to that, well, you know, Jesus and Paul weren't married, and I think their ministries went pretty okay. See, God had to use that situation in my life to make me realize that I had deified marriage. I had taken marriage and I had placed it higher than God. And I was trusting that to bring some fulfillment and to meet some needs in my life that only he could meet. Have you idolized marriage in some way? Maybe you're here today and you're, you're engaged or you're, you're sitting next to somebody you're really thinking about getting engaged to. Before you do that, you've got to ask yourself, are you expecting this relationship, are you expecting each other to meet needs that only God can meet? Are you, are you exchanging the truth for a lie? A lie that you're now about to place upon that other person. No human relationship is going to meet the needs in your life that God can. The person sitting next to you, no matter how amazing they are, cannot do things in your life that only God can do. And before you step into that commitment, maybe the best thing that you could do is figure out how to love that person less so that you can love God more and expect less of them so that you can expect more of God. Maybe you're a single person here today and you're disappointed that you're not yet married. Or, or, or maybe you've elevated marriage to such a high place that it's led you from one bad relationship into another thinking that marriage is going to fix the problems in your life. God wants you to know that there are needs and expectations that only he can meet. And if you're disappointed that you haven't found another person to meet those needs in your life, then even if you do find a mate to spend your life with, you're just going to be exchanging one disappointment for another. Because God is the creator. He is supreme. He is the one we must deify. We are to enjoy the created things, but we're not to worship them. Now, maybe you're in a tough marriage right now, and I get it. I get it. Like, you can hear some of this stuff, and but marriage takes two. And it's frustrating, because even though you want to apply some of this stuff to your marriage, you're not optimistic that the person that you're married to will. And you have expectations that haven't been met. You have needs that are unfulfilled. But, but here's, here's what you can know. When you know that God created marriage, you can know that even though the person that you're married to isn't perfect, neither are you, and even though we bring, we bring our blemishes and our mistakes and our weaknesses into marriage, we have a creator who's bigger than marriage, who is unblemished, who is perfect, who will never let you down, who will never hurt you, will never leave you, will never depart from you, who always loves you, always wants what's best for you, and has through Jesus Christ put your needs and your value and your worth
And when you turn to your Father in heaven and you receive that love and that commitment from him, you know you have one in your life that will never let you down. So what's God saying to you today about marriage? What does it mean for your life to know that he created this? If you're in a marriage right now, what's it mean to your marriage that he created it? If you're looking forward to marriage, if you're, if you're single and, and you're wondering, God, do you have a person for me? What does it mean for your life today? Let me have a prayer for you, and I ask that you would just also pray along with me silently as you sit there. Ask God to just speak to your heart right now. God, we come before you. Some of these things that we've talked about are a little bit heady, God, and it's really some things that we may have even heard before, probably have heard the story of Adam and Eve previously. But God, I pray that the truth of what you've done through marriage will sink in. And you will give us ways in our marriages, in our single relationships, in our friendships, possibly in our future marriages, to serve you by serving each other, by knowing that you created this relationship for us. Pray this now in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining with us today. I, I would ask that as you leave, maybe you head out to the, the lobby. We have a cleaning team who's going to be coming in and uh, sanitizing some of the seats for the next service that's going to be coming in. So enjoy some time fellowshipping, but please do that out in the lobby. You have a wonderful week, and we will see you next Sunday.